and welcome to a lock-in at the Crate and Crowbar. This is a lock-in which partly explains my absence from regular podcasting duties since the beginning of this year, and that explanation is Teeth, a tabletop role-playing game about occult criminality and monster hunting in a cursed corner of 18th century England, which you can back on Kickstarter right now and turn into a real-world book that you can admire and perhaps even read. I co-wrote this 320-plus page megatome of horror and silliness with the much-esteemed game developer and writer Jim Rossignol, who, as chance would have it, is also on this extremely self-indulgent podcast today. Hello, Jim. Hello, Marsh. How are you? I'm good. We've been making this game for three years, Jim. Why? Why, <laughs> why did we do that to ourselves and to a more dilute extent the world? Oh my goodness! Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. Like you know, you started it. Oh no, maybe, maybe I did. I can't remember now. <laughs> well, I mean, actually, I think the whole thing started off as a sort of spin-off from Simba Room, the game we were playing in our regular role-playing group. Ah, uh, yes. It's an amazing setting. It's just this fabulously grim and slightly off-kilter fantasy uh, about a, a place with a massive, horrible forest in it, and it's um. But it's paired with these rules, which we just didn't quite jive with as a, as a group. And that sort of inspired you, I think, to, to see if you could try and adapt it to the Forged in the Dark rule set. And then as these things snowball, you ended up wanting to make a, a setting all of our own. And that uh, was a fancy setting. I started drawing stuff for you and then started getting involved in the writing as well. And then eventually that morphed into a historical English setting. Uh, which I think was at one point the 16th century, and then maybe the 19th century, and we sort of split the difference uh, and landed on 1780 as the year. And then after about uh, six months of development, you suggested we work on some other stuff, some one-shots to build a head of steam for the project. And as, as a result of that, we ended up releasing three standalone modules, each bigger and more weird and complex than the last. I remember that. Night of the Hogman blood cotillion stranger and stranger and now we are poised to release the mother of these uh mini books teeth itself which we had mostly written by the time we started on the on the one shot stuff mostly i know we hadn't like fully play tested it or other stuff but we did we kind of did it the wrong way <laughs> i wrote an entire book and went hang on a minute maybe we should start smaller than that Go back to the beginning. I think it helped, though, because by, by doing those smaller books, we sort of refined what teeth should be. I think we did we did end up going back and revising and maybe sort of like focusing the the theme of teeth. Oh, yeah, I think everything was revised, wasn't it, by the time we were back out the other end. Um, I'm just reading some amusing tables that you've put in here. Alarming <laughs> animal is one of the complications. Makes me, makes me laugh each time. Do I explain what teeth is? A sort of longer... Longer explanation of the premise of the game. Oh, do we know that? Yes. <laughs> I mean, just to get down to brass tacks, it's it's a game for three to six people, uh, including a games master, uh, in which the players take on the role of uh, these specially trained killers and trackers and academicians, uh, which is a word that we recently discovered we didn't make up. That <laughs> yeah, is real. Uh, and each of these these players is uniquely scarred by some occult encounter in their past, and they've all been commissioned as a group, as an outfit, by the English crown to identify and root out and destroy these sort of nightmarish things that are plaguing a remote tract of England called the Vale of Duluth, which is the site of a terrible 
alchemical Chernobyl equivalent, uh, which occurred some 48 years prior. And the entire area has been cordoned off uh, with those who are already living there, trapped inside. And the only people that can come and go to this region are those who carry some sort of royal ascent, like the hunters themselves or militia or other delegates of the crown who manage the acquisition and flow of occult artifacts from the Vale, with which King George himself means to bolster England's status as a colonial mega power and crush his enemies at home and abroad. It's, we really wear our influences on our sleeve and not, we're not shy about it. You know, like the, the, the stalker stuff that I've obsessed over for years is right there, as it was with Simba Room, actually. And you say we keyed off that game originally. Um, you know, this uh, this sort of fantasy of an uncanny z- contaminated zone uh, that players must get, in, get into and then mm. maybe leave. Um, I think like just sits in the foreground, my imaginative foreground all the time. Um and it's cropped up again here, um, which I really like. You know, I think we're, we're, we're and maybe uh, I, I used to I used to feel maybe a little bit shy about about that stuff, like what I was most um, or most excited about. But now I'm just, you know, no, let's just grab the stuff that we're most excited about and just <laughs> squeeze as much enjoyment out of those obsessions as we possibly can, uh, which I feel like we've done with this because um, we list off the influences and the things that we're excited about in it and um it is very much a venn diagram of all the things that we love really mm, uh, yes. with teeth in the center um but yeah you know, uh, certainly yeah the stalker is a is a huge influence on on the idea of a sort of trapped uh, being trapped and well actually that's partly because of stalker but partly also because of forged in the dark and or rather blades in the dark which has a sort of uh uh, um, pressure cooker feeling to it in that all the players are part you know in this city which is hemmed in by darkness and they can't really escape and things are going to go wrong uh, as the city becomes more volatile and we wanted to do a similar sort of thing I think um, and that naturally fitted the idea of the zone as you know Stalker perceives it as well like this place which is mm. um, forbidden and dangerous uh, but all uh, and but also potentially really volatile. And I think that that that's that's something that um, is promoted by the the idea of the the secret agendas, where you know the the players aren't actually any particular friends to England or King George, and they arrive uh, in the in in the Vale of Duluth with plans all of their own, which you know monster hunting is just good cover for, and they they might be revolutionaries or agents of foreign powers or. Um, and they w- might want to ferment rebellion in this place, which has, you know, uh, there's lots of very discontented people in there with their own agendas who could be whipped up into rebellion, which might, you know, uh, aid France or the the American colonies who are currently at war with England. Um, or they might be just there after some sort of p- form of personal retribution or seeking justice over somebody who's fled there. Um, or they might be uh, seeking the destruction of the occult altogether, or maybe even intent on unleashing the occult on the wider world. And we have various different uh, outfit types, each with their own secret agenda, which are designed to encourage players to navigate their way through the material in very, very different ways. Uh, so part of the genesis of this, I think, was the many year-long return to RPGs that certainly I did um starting starting with a return to, to D and then hitting um forged in the dark stuff where i think you joined our second or third campaign of that 
I think it was maybe the third campaign you came aboard. Um, and we ended up playing that. And I think one of the things that stood out was what, what, do, what do characters want in RPGs and how much that makes things fun and interesting. And when a player defines something that their player wants and then pushes for it during the game... So I think we made that quite explicit in this, that although they are monster hunters, they also want something, um, which brought us the the quite sort of almost board gamey uh, agenda track. Um, and it's very much a kind of, uh, they've got an agenda. Can they see it through in the time that they've got? Which I really like. I think it's a really focused approach. But whatever they do there, they have to do it in the space of a year, which is another level of extra pressure that we are putting on on this this scenario because as the seasons turn so the sort of corruption of the veil sinks into their bones and, and if they stay too long they will become too contaminated to ever leave which is you know again a stalker sort of uh, influence you know the, the analogous to radiation poisoning yeah yeah uh, one of the other things i, I wanted to, to just quickly touch on in that though that is that while in um in 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 Stalker, Simbarim, and so on, there's life does not continue in normal. It doesn't continue as normal in, in the Vale. It, it, sorry, in, in their zone. In the Vale, it continues very much as normal as much as they can make it do so. So there are still villages, there are noble families, uh, there are traders and businessmen trying to carry on as normal, even though they have this military cordon around them, even though they know they're sinking into this occult mire all around. Um, there are people who are either quarantined and unable to leave um, or just unwilling to do so. Um, and they, they carry on as normal, which allows the um, the sort of uh, range of things that you can get involved in in, in, in teeth to be quite broad. So one of our spin-offs was um, one of the standalone pieces was Blood Cotillion, which was the uh, a, a sort of monstrous fancy ball with, uh, with, with again with the, with a with a with a, an agenda all of its own for the players um, and monstrous secrets hidden behind. But I think that because of the material that we've gone for, which is the sort of um, Jane Austen era of of, of England, we, we you couldn't you couldn't exclude that. You, you know, we had to include um, the sort of diversity and breadth of, of, of things that were happening in England at that point. Um, I think yeah. one of my favourite bits about this is the fact that we did make that sudden turn and say, no, it, it does need to be it does, does need to be England. It doesn't need to be a fantasy setting that we've created. It needs to be a fantasised version of, uh, of, of actual history. And I think it's just come out so much stronger as a result. And there are so many reference points that people can immediately hook onto from the landscape through to, um, you know, tropes like uh, the big fancy ball and, you know, the manor house with, with people st- you know, living in it and servants and, and horses and all the, all the, all the paraphernalia of, of aristocracy um, and other stuff that I think um, maybe resonates with um, people who... Did GCSE history more than, than others? Maybe uh, little, little things like uh, the fact that we've got highwaymen um, in there, and you know, and, and other characters from the era that seem to have uh, taken on a kind of an iconic resonance. Um, 
and I like that. I, I love the fact that we've got that kind of identity for for, for teeth, um, and seeing people latch onto that has been really really rewarding to run uh, as, a, as a GM. Mm. I mean, I, I, I a lot of this comes from the things that we ended up getting weirdly obsessed with during lockdown. I think. I mean, obviously. Uh, we ended up, you and I, playing an inordinate amount of Hunt Showdown together, mm. um, more mm. than it was healthy uh, mm. in those unhealthy times. And I think that the the scenario there is is similar in that there is you know a, a period um, set cursed landscape with a very specific identity into which players enter uh, as hunters, um, and I feel like. We just we just wanted to take that fantasy and turn it into a, a role playing game, but at the same time, you know, other our other interests like the you know interest in the English wilderness and um, our you know uh, my particular interest in in Jane Austen and, and other you know, other things from that time mm. period just ended up sort of infecting that idea in a big way. Um, I mean, the, 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 the setting is later, but I think it has a lot of the same tropes. Uh, it, is that um, uh, I watched multiple versions of Hound of the Baskervilles. <laughs> yeah. So I think there was, there was one filmed in like 1930 or something, and then basically one a decade all the way up to the 80s. And I was trying to spot during that, during that process which was the one I'd seen that had terrified me <laughs> as a child. And I believe it was the, the 1984 one with Tom Baker in it. Um, well, see, I mean, Hound of the Baskervilles, even though it is from a later period, I mean, a lot of the horror, you know, in Hound of the Baskervilles is very gothic, which is of the period that we're talking about, more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, like, the, you know, there's a there's a creature loose on the moors is, is you know, is exactly the kind of thing that we're trying to channel. Um, yeah. Maybe we should talk a bit about the sort of the, 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 the core experience of the game. Like what what is the, the sort of game loop? as you might describe it in, in video game terms. And that sort of it begins with the players uh, as an outfit seeking these opportunities or, or commissions for work in the Vale, um, some of which might, might be just to bolster their, their cover as monster hunters. Some might be to fatten the outfit's wallets and increase their resources so that they can pursue their hidden agenda. Uh, and others might directly further that secret agenda. Um, and so these, you know, we, we've arranged the material so that there's just loads and loads of leads to new jobs everywhere you look in the book. And each location has this list of rumors, clues, and opportunities that the GM can sort of like sprinkle in at will as the players move around that environment. And all of the book contents is 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 intended to be like heavily interconnected in ways which uh, kind of create these breadcrumb trails that allow the GM to easily access adventures from different angles and with different motivations. Um, and so once that objective has been decided by the players, the players then travel to the location across the wilderness, which is a very significant thing in our game, facing challenges and, and, and diversions along the way. And then when they're there, they they do the sort of Hound of the Baskerville style unraveling of the mystery at that location. And they're like pouring over gory, uh, aftermath of a monster attack or interrogating witnesses or unpicking lies and ultimately trying to identify the type of creature that's responsible. And if they're successful, then they, they have access to knowledge about its weaknesses and can plan their means of confronting it. And then we cut straight to the confrontation in swing as the player's preparations come good or the situation unravels into a nightmarish shit show. Um, and then once the dust settles, uh, the player's 
hack up the creature uh, and consider their next move and how it might get them closer to their true purpose in the Vale. And all the while, the seasons are turning and the threat of contamination is rising, making the players uh, exit from the Vale ever more perilous as it's going to be hard getting past the guards if they have like a, a laser net finger uh, or some other bulbous protrusion that is emitting flies uh, or so forth. Yes. Does that about sum it up? That does sum it up. I mean, just to give some context to that, um, as you mentioned, this is a, a, a Forged in the Dark-based um, rule set. So uh, some people listening to this will have, will have played that system, others not, I'm sure. Um, but what I think one of the things that was really interesting for us encountering that system for the first time was when you've played the quite kind of numbersy, rulesy, structured systems um, based on Dungeons and Dragons, it it looks very freeform and narrative, but really it is one of the most tightly crafted and incredibly sort of um, subtly structured uh, games. And 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 the way it does that, I think, it leans a lot on the expected things you're expected to do in the different phases of the game. Um, and ours aren't aren't the phases of Blades in the Dark on which the, which you know which the rule set was built for, but they do echo its attempts to do things that are um, narratively interesting, like the cut to the chase of the um, the the engagement. The you know the the it, it, it's the score in in Blades in the Dark where you're performing the job that, that you've been hired to do or that you, you've got involved in. Um, and with us, it's the uh, the climatic event of of taking on a monster, or or, or, or any of the other things that uh, that, that uh, the, the scenario allows for, uh, which we we we, uh, we list assassinating a bishop as one of those <laughs> some of those possible things. Yeah, I think you know, reading through this and when the last. Uh last edits i did we we have bishops get it a lot <laughs> in the examples i don't, <laughs> don't know why there's just something funny about you know demeaning or destroying a bishop um yeah well they are they are awful people um, <laughs> I, I, I jest of course they're all they're all lovely and law-abiding i'm sure uh, but not but not in the 18th century goodness no <laughs> um but no i think leaning on that structure um was both really useful for us um because it made sure that we were telling the players what to expect to do at any point in the game. So the, the first phase is the opportunity phase, where you're um, looking for or receiving information and then deciding which leads to pursue or which directions to, to travel. And then we had the most problematic piece of design, I think, in the whole thing, which I think you solved in the end, which was the wilderness phase. Now, in, in Blades in the Dark... Um, all the all the um, scores take place within a city, a uh, single city, which means that there's no great amount of travelling required for the characters. And even though the veil is contained within a cordon, we did want to give a sense of how awful it is to travel across wintry or even even summery uh, British landscape when there are no roads, when everything is mud. Um, and the, the 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 sense of trepidation that you would have within that, the preparation you would need, um, 
And then in the situ- in the situation that the players find themselves in the veil, the, the awful things that you could potentially encounter, which has led to our wonderful um, encounter tables that we include in the book. But that was a really tricky phase to create, to get that mm. to feel right, because what we didn't want was then for people to get caught up within the... Um, the sort of intricacies and of, of travel um, and survival and, and uh, or exploration in in those in those phases, and getting it right, I think getting the getting a, a dice pool system that was within the spirit of how Forge in the Dark works generally, making it feel quite snappy, but making it feel crunchy in a way that players can contribute to and come up with reasons why they get get dice and 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 to, to and to build it in a, in a way that, it, that then just gives narrative back to the players, I think was a really interesting ch- challenge. And it was quite difficult to, to pull off, I think. And I think it's one of the things that I'm most uh, pleased with. We ended up sort of leaning too heavily on the simulation. Uh, I think this is probably something that a lot of designers struggle with, where they have like a fantasy they wish to get to, uh, and they end up just over-simulating it. Um, and that's and that's. F- that can be fine. That can be very rewarding. But I, I think it, it just pulled against what is the sort of breezy, um, narratively improvisational um, sort of rule set that, that the Forge in the Dark system provides. And it felt like everything was quite everything was quite speedy up until that point, and then it suddenly slowed down as people were pouring over maps and measuring distances and trying to count, calculate, you know, how fast a horse would travel across marsh and so forth. Uh, and in the end, we just, we pulled a lot of that out and we made it much more kind of conversational. I think that was probably the right thing to do. But mm. I, I, one of the reasons that we really wanted to have such, um, have like wilderness travel being an important part of the game is that um, the, the landscape uh, the sort of the kind of amalgamation of British landscapes that we've gone for is 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 very characterful and evocative to us, and I, maybe it was because we were stuck inside during the pandemic. But like you know, you know, the idea of uh, escape to these sort of places of high moorland and rugged for- forests and and peat bogs and stuff seemed very kind of um, alluring, even though the the setting we've gone for is a sort of nightmarish inversion of that. Um, and so, so the kind of landscape that we, we, we've gone for, I think nominally it's in the north of England. I think we specify that it's in the north of England. It's somewhere mm. north of Carlisle. I think if, if I think if you sort of geolocate it with all the kind of information we put in there, I think it ends up being um, somewhere in, in Kilda Water National Park. But um, it is not <laughs> like Kilda Water National Park. It displaces that terrain for uh, a sort of different geography, which is inspired by the moors of Northumberland and Yorkshire and the crags of the Lake District and Peak District and the moors of the south as well, like Dartmoor and Exmoor and Bodmin. So there's lots of high, wet uplands and glacier-carved slopes and heaths and peaty bogs and dark primordial forests. And in the in the last newsletter, I talked a bit about why those places are so powerful um, for me, but it's it's essentially that you know, Britain is is very populated and a very urbanized island. And so these kind of wildernesses, I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel like these wildernesses offer a, like a connection with a, 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 a prehistoric past, which is sort of deadly and, and feral uh, and indifferent. I think that's the thing that I really mm. like about them. It's, we wanted to get the sense that this landscape isn't for people. It, it doesn't serve them in the way that designed spaces serve us. It's dangerous and fickle and it can easily spell the end of uh, of an unwary traveler and i wonder if 
I wonder if that feels as interesting <laughs> to players who come from bigger countries. Because, like, I'm in America now, and in America, the whole vibe of national parks is just different. Like in, like in the UK, national parks are generally quite rugged and ramshackle, but then and they're not necessarily terribly accessible, but they're also not that dangerous. <laughs> like they've generally been tamed to some degree. Like you, mm. you can definitely absolutely die on Snowden uh, or in Dartmoor, and people do every year. But like, if you're equipped for the weather and you don't stay off the beaten path and you aren't wildly unlucky, it's it's rare that you'll face a lethal hazard while hiking. Whereas it was in America, I don't know, maybe it's just because the place is so much bigger generally and the parks are bigger, but there feels like there's this starker dichotomy between the tamed and the untamed. So you'll mm. go to a park and it'll be like up to the very kind of uh, limits as wheelchair accessible and tarmac as it can be. And then if you step off that tarmac path, you're really on your own to a much greater degree than you are in the UK. Mm. Uh, even if that trail that you're walking down is a known hiking trail, it just feels uh, much more kind of wild and uh, inhospitable. or like, Not inhospitable, but just uh, indifferent in the way that we're trying to access. Mm. Uh, so maybe, maybe Americans will, will see this and will be unfazed by it and be just like, yeah, it's just like the last time I hiked the Appalachians. <laughs> you know, what's the big deal? <laughs> Uh, but yeah, sorry, a bit of digression there. But I, I guess that's all to say that we want players to feel that sense of uh, indifference of the environment and to to meet that challenge with some amount of foresight. Yeah, and I, I think we did try to capture some of the weirdness of 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 those of those wilderness landscapes in in Britain. Um, and uh, my my contribution to that news that bit was to talk about their eeriness. Mm. Um, I, I, I find I. I, I when I've been in North America, although I'm talking more about Canada, actually, because I haven't seen much of the U.S. wilderness, actually. I've seen more Canadian wilderness than I have uh, uh, United States wilderness. But there, there is a sense of sort of enormity and ruggedness. And and there are bears, of course, which is never good. Um, <laughs> but um, there's a sort of – I think there's a sort of eeriness to um, the wilderness in the U.K. precisely because the U.K. is so populated that – the danger you're likely to meet is more likely a weird dude <laughs> who's up there for some reason uh, than a bear or, or a wolf or, or or just you know pure isolation. Um, and we certainly provide some weird dudes in uh, in teeth for you to meet. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So the, the wilderness phase, as we we ended up on, is is building a dice pool uh, for travel with certain kinds of preparations adding to that dice pool and certain uh, criteria relating to the season and where you're going, removing them. Um, and the result is this is sort of like a narrative vignette where the GM draws from these weather and table descriptions that we've provided as tables and well, makes, makes their own up to sort of give a flavor of that journey and the toll it takes on the players without kind of stopping them and slowing them down too much. But then at the same time, there are opportunities for encounters in the wilderness um, of which we've suggested uh, I can't remember exactly how many. Over eighty, um, and these these aren't necessary. These can be hazardous. Ha hazardous. These can be hazards of the wilderness, um, but they're not necessarily simply punitive. Um, they are even if you roll you roll well, then you don't necessarily have to have an encounter because the uh, the idea of the dice pool is it represents preparation and a sort of like focus on your purpose where you're trying to get to which allows you to kind of uh, avoid distraction but then 
if you do end up in one of these encounters, it could be a chance meeting with a useful contact. It could be an opportunity for the GM to buff the group or redirect them in a helpful way. Um, it could be otherwise an opportunity to simply fuck them up in many of the horrible ways they we, they can be fucked up in teeth. Um, but it, it's just this uh, this sort of tool, this lever that the GM can pull, which allows for a large number of uh, very bespoke outcomes. Which I, I don't think that's that's worked really well in our favour in the end. Although obviously you know players will be the players will be the judge of that. Um, but o- overall, it, 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 I think that the way that we've ended up uh, using the the phases to um, set players up to, to and give them calls to action has worked worked really well. So the, the and, and the, the sort of defining phase phase for me uh, when when we were designing this and also when, when we were. Uh, playing a lot of um, the stuff that we were doing with Blades in the Dark is, the, is what we call the, the aftermath phase. So, mm. uh, so we have the investigation phase, which is which is very much kind of um, it's very light. There's not sort of it's not heavy on planning, uh, which is, as is you know as is faithful to the Forge in the Dark stuff. Um, but it does allow us to detect the nature of what's, what's going on, to track things, interrogate. Um, but then the uh, and then the engagement, of course, is is is, is uh, the, the climactic execution. You know, it's, it's the it's the moment of, of taking on the uh, the challenge. But I think it's the aftermath phase that interests me the most. In the end, I think it was the one that I had the most fun with. Um, and it has some it has some sort of just housekeeping stuff there with the, with getting the the outfit and the characters um, working alongside other factions, um, building other. Uh, Building other projects and general housekeeping, but I think it was one of the it, it was it was building that and and reading what what actually what, what other games had done with it as well. Um, Band of Blades. I'm going to go completely off off topic for a second. Well, not completely off topic, but to a to a tangent topic, tangential topic. Uh, Band of Blades, um, which we don't mention earlier, didn't mention earlier, is is a huge influence on this stuff because I absolutely loved the level of housekeeping. That that had within it, and I thought it was really interesting in the way that it because in that you were a an army being chased across a landscape by what sort of the remnants of an army I should say being chased across a landscape by a huge undead horde. It's the sort of the Dark Lord has won in that setting, um, and he's just trying to clear up, and you're you're escaping from the having failed at the uh, the, the the final battle to save the world. Um, and there's tons of kind of housekeeping of, of like what do the officers do? How do they run the the the, the, uh, the force as it uh, as it retreats? How does it keep morale up? How does it keep? And I, and I really enjoyed that. I thought that was really interesting. And I'm, while we don't go quite as complex or as, as heavy on and uh, uh, stuff that we do in the aftermath phase, there is a very very much for me a um, a nod to the fact that some of the most interesting experiences we've had in the last few years of role-playing have come from those kinds of phases where people have had side projects or people have used long-term projects to um, bolster things that have happened later on in the campaign. Uh, I mean, I, I think one of one of my favourite was the, the Blaze in the Dark campaign that we did where um, Ollie secretly set himself up to betray the rest of the group, and that was oh. his long-term project. Mm. Um, which was just a fantastic piece of work by him, and I wanted to make sure that um, you know that those kinds of opportunities for players to 
um, to play with their characters were were kept in. And I think that's why the, the aftermath phase is one of the things I'm most pleased with in terms of what you can do um, and how it works beyond, you know, it, 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 it's it, from it, for those familiar with Dungeons and Dragons, this is the essentially the spend experience points and spend your gold kind of phase. But there's a lot more to it to, to that. Um, and there's some sort of maintenance stuff and, as I say, mm. sort of housekeeping things going on, including the, the complications um, section, which I which I, I think I've got an enormous amount out of. I really like, I mean, this is a thing from um, Blades in the Dark, but in, indulging vice, which is a thing that you can do to reduce your stress levels, which is a sort of narrative currency uh, in the game. That's a, that's always been a, an evocative uh, narrative digression in the middle of what is, you know, as you say, a housekeeping phase. And it has, serves a housekeeping purpose. Like you're reducing a stat so that you then get to use it again to its full effect in the next sort of phase of the game. But it's it's done through uh, like uh, the most lurid possible narrative means you can, which is that you, you uh, as a character, have a particular vice uh, a particular nefarious itch that you have to scratch every now and again and that can be as uh, weird and or disgusting as you like and in teeth we encourage people to go as excessively in that direction as they can and we we've just i saw uh, i can't remember which other game it was which allows you to uh, indulge vice together um and uh, i think it was i think it was inspired by something um one of the the rule sets that uh, the role-playing group friends at the table were playing um and they used it as a way of n- bonding players together uh both in narrative terms like players would actually learn something about each other's characters and uh they would form a sort of bond in that sense but also there would be some kind of mechanical bond that um that that the the intimacy of in, indulging a vice together would would provide and so a, a lot of points during teeth there are opportunities for uh players to learn things about each other's characters that is meant to create these sorts of um deeper bonds within the group and i th- i think that's a really uh a really important thing that's something i've always liked about the way that we've played role playing games together is the point at which you know your 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 motley crew um, begins to, uh, if not like each other's company, then at least find each other's characters deeply interesting in a way which you know you don't necessarily get from um, filling out the character sheet. Mm. I mean, I, I think the, the the current generation of, of narrative um, leading games have have been brilliant in terms of making players and GMs GMs alike think about prompts for those kinds of moments um and and building that into the systems as we've done with the aftermath stuff i think is 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 super important um because it does allow that just little moment for reflection that little moment of character building um and it and i think once people know it's part of the the sort of beat of the game as well it's part of the loop um, they start planning that and thinking about how they can make their character more interesting and how they can build on the interactions that they've had before and um, how they can make the, the sort of numbers and phrases they've scribbled on a, on a character sheet um, or playbook um, means mean something a bit more. Mm. Um, and and the, and the more, more, more we spend time um, doing work writing this stuff, the more I feel 
that um, the materials we're producing are, 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 are it, it, they're almost more about the prompts to what what it is that you you should be doing and what it is you should be thinking about and what you what what you should be expected to um, say and, and and how to act and things like that than it is anything else you, you know it's all within the structure of the rules but they're almost secondary to this um, prompts to action prompts to the to the things that you can do the things you can expect to do and the ways you can interact um, with both the characters in the world and the other people around the table. Um, and I think one of the reasons that um, Teeth has ended up so fat is that the book is absolutely full of that stuff. Um, and, you know, p- partly in that, the, that sort of player interaction stuff, but very heavily in the world book that we ended up um, laying out. Controversially, in the first half of the book, um, <laughs> which a few people have commented on, that we put the rules for play at the back um, rather than the front of the ah, book. Oh, I like them there. I like to, I, I like to know what uh, what I'm playing before I uh, bother to learn how to play it. <laughs> um, maybe that says something about my no, level I, of uh, I, I, detail when it comes to rules. I don't know, but I, I I I like it too. I think it's I think it's worked particularly well. I think there are a few of the books I've, I've noted in my collection that have got uh, the, the the world at the front, but I think the the way we've done the world and the way this ends up. Um, um, the, the way the presentation ends up kind of guiding you through the book, I think is is fantastic. Um, and you know, there's a bunch of influences there in terms of the stuff I produced, but I think I can't think of another book that manages to do some of the stuff that we've done, like the, the map of Gatlock having that kind of period um, map look to it um, and having some, I don't know, you know, it's a obviously completely fictional place, but I I love the kind of sense of authenticity that some of it has with like the old town and then the rows of terraced newer buildings and um, and the way we built fictions off that and the people who who would um, live and work in them um, and the number of characters that are created just from a from a side you know, just a side mention, you know, like we quite often have a major character and then there'll be his assistant, which is often just a name um, or, you know, perhaps a one sentence description. Um, and then the, for each section, that's followed with a uh, rumours, clues and opportunities um, piece, which has got, just got, you know, calls to action, little kind of asides, um, sometimes just pure flavour text, other times genuine mysteries. And, I've I've always really enjoyed books that do that and really go to town on that. Um, it, Monty Cook's Numenera, I said, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it couldn't couldn't be more different as a setting with its kind of like high science fantasy uh, future stuff. But that does that in in a similar way where every every section has these just these little glimpses of the universe. A crystal man is upon the hill. What does he want? You know, I, I just, I love that stuff. And then it's just absolutely brimming with it. Um, and we've ended up going that way with with teeth as well. That every section has some mystery or weirdness that I, as a GM, you know, as a habitual GM, that's the stuff I'm always looking out for when um, these books land in my lap. And I want to, um, as soon as I find that, I want, I want to stop building and I, I i love the fact that we front-ended the game with that because it feels like 
a sort of letter to the GM, like, look at all this stuff that you could make stories with and all these weirdos that you can throw into your campaign and these creatures that live in lakes and forests and these weird buildings. And um, it's quite architectural teeth, actually, thinking about it. Like the, the, I just mentioned the, the, the different buildings in Gatlock and stuff, but we've, there's, you, you, did a, you did a little um, little diagram of one of the old pubs. I think it's the King Willem um, pub. And then there's several uh, floor plans of, of, uh, of, of, of the, um, some of the more grander buildings. And yeah, kind of unnecessary in a game which doesn't have standees or, or miniatures, but um... but so much flavour, and why not? <laughs> and 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 of course the the, the our bizarre um, lib- downward library, which is a tower buried in the buried in a, well placed in a pit, so that so that the top part of the tower appears to be a normal building, but actually it's a tower going down into a big. pit. That was just a phrase that I I sketched on something ages back and it spawned a whole section of the book and the fantastic uh, illustration that you've done for the the pit descending into the earth and then going under the ground mm. um, i think that was a good uh you know uh, process of yes and in uh in our back and forth edits of this where you would you would put something down which was just a, a an evocative sounding thing then i'd then i'd get obsessed with some aspect of it and then you'd fill out some more and then it'd fill out some more and then uh, i discover that you know it was too short in the page and i had to add an extra paragraph uh and then uh, uh, it becomes something kind of much deeper and weirder and and, and richer and, and and i don't think i don't yeah i don't i don't think either one of us could have come at that stuff alone necessarily it ended up with exactly the same thing Mm. that we ended up with it was something about going back and forth that was very that really has enriched it and one of the things i like about um the rumors clues and opportunities as i've said there's a lot a lot of the this stuff is designed to interconnect and the, the books laid out so that these these margins on either side of every page which have page numbers which allow you to kind of see all the kind of interconnected stuff every time there's a bolded word basically there's a page number which will quickly get you to the to whatever that material connects to and um, for a lot of the rumors clues and opportunities that's designed to kind of lead people without having to really do a lot of high level thinking from the gm from one section of content to another and there'll be something coherent at the end of it obviously gms can improvise and they don't need to follow that stuff but if they do they'll find themselves quite easily funneled between um coherent and cogent sort of uh connecting mysteries or you know intrigues however Obviously, that stuff is probably good uh, only for one playthrough. Um, so returning people, there are sections marked alternatively, which just provide scenarios um, which are completely unrelated to the the rest of the content in the book. And some of them are deeply, deeply strange. Uh, uh, there's one that says, uh, this, I, this is a good example of going back and forth where I realized I had to fill out some... Uh, some extra material to make it fit the page and it just got stranger um screams can be f- heard from the moor and then bright lights what's out there the villagers say it is a wizard the truth is far worse illegal trespasses in the distant future of 1995 have developed deep crunk a rave music so hardcore that it breaks not only beats but time itself <laughs> you're a terrible person there's lots of nonsense of that kind throughout but not but not a comedy like it, it, it is a funny book um and we definitely draw on comedy throughout but in but in that seam of 
comedy being quite dark. Well, one I of think. the touchstones for, for me, at least, is is the League of Gentlemen, uh, mm. which is uh, obviously uh, comic, but also deeply horrific as well, and, and set in in the north of England. I think the whole book does stumble between. Um, I mean, that's that's why I use the, the term grotesque, uh, which 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 tends to get reduced to a sort of word for just ugly or you know nasty looking these days, but I think. Uh, more traditionally, it had this sense of a, a you know a ludicrous caricature to it. You know, a grotesque being mm. this kind of um, you know whether it was a a, a, a play or a you know a, a piece of visual art or, 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 or you know or an individual being a kind of caricature that is comedic and by turns horrifying. Um, and I love that about this. And, I, and the, the cursed pies section, um, <laughs> yes. cer- certainly I've, I've handed that to a few people and they've come away with that, you know, that kind of like, dis- you know, disgusted amusement. Like, oh, you, you've appalled them. And yet, you know, they're smiling kind of. Um, the, you know, the, the book does a lot of that stuff, which I've been really pleased with. Um, and and you know the fact that it's broke you know it's set in the 18th century but there there's plenty of genre bending and breaking and you know as you say time traveling ravers and um and so on um means that it you know it it is one moment very funny um and then others and others quite grim i quite like the cursed pies for the diversity of outcomes that there are like oh, the, the descriptions still make me chuckle anyway but just cuz they're I mean, some of them are just really good, delicious sounding pies. <laughs> um, but then, um, but then, you know, some of the, the the resulting curses could be anything from like something which is which might have some um, mechanical consequences, where you know, uh, you know, your skin burns with a bright red rash, blisters form on the recesses of your flesh, it hurts to piss. I mean, you can see how that that could be a problem if you're trying to talk to people and they're disgusted by your appearance. Um, (laughs) But then there's something sometimes it's useful, like you must suffer a continual ticking sound which rises to a rapid knocking as loud as brass on an oak door whenever other people can see you. And so, you know, that's (laughs) that, that could that could be useful, in fact, if you're trying to move unobserved. And then there are other times, you know, when it it could just be um, uh, a completely useless role playing uh, hook, uh, for example, your elbows feel really big, and then, <laughs> and the only antidote to that is revenge. <laughs> uh, I don't know really uh, what you do with that. Uh, mechanic but but, that, but I think that but... speaks to the the stuff I was saying about prompts. You know, the book is just absolutely heaving with stuff that is funny or stupid or just pushes people to. Because I I think and. and as much as I think you and I should take all the credit for how amazing this book is, mm-hmm. it is true that <laughs> there were players who played it with us who were funny and inventive and silly and and helped define the tone of the whole thing by mm, for sure by, by buying in, you know. And the buy-in is always the thing, right? Like if your players don't buy into the the conceit of what you're 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 running then they don't, you know, the, the, just the thing just doesn't work. And I think I feel like certainly everyone who play tested this stuff, although perhaps the scene was set a little bit by most of those people playing the standalone games mm. beforehand. 
um, they understood they understood the assignment, right? They knew it was going to be crazed yokels, and um, that they they understood that the sort of Englishness to it, you know, that there was going to be a kind of like um, blackadder farce while the horror was going down and shambling abominations were coming to take the skull. Can I can I read uh, two of the uh, testimonials that we've uh, uh, shillishly put on our Kickstarter page? But they give you a sort of flavour of the things that people, other people than us, ended up doing uh, within the rules. Um, my characters. This is from uh, Nels Anderson, who's the uh, who's a developer on Firewatch and March of the, March Mark of the Ninja, amongst other things. Um, uh, he said, my character's best friend was a six-eyed horse named Meredith, and she was beautiful, and so is this game. <laughs> Bless him. And then uh, Tom Francis said, uh, this is about Stranger and Stranger, one of the one-shots, actually, rather than Teeth itself, but I feel like it's applicable. Um, an antagonist turned into a swarm of bees. Our horse husband ended up as an invincible baby wearing a massive psychic skull. And our finale was played out by a dog with human hands singing Irish doom folk and another player's giant mutated naked unconscious son. Uh, <laughs> and like, you know, that stuff did 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 happen in all of the playtests. <laughs> you know? uh, I, I think my favorite uh, anecdote is one of the sort of uh, we have these sort of magic rituals that can be enacted, which uh, uh, help to weaken the, the the foes that you come up with if you've correctly identified them. Uh, and one group, um, I can't remember exactly what they did. Uh, there's like two, there's several stages to a magic uh, ritual, a flashback ritual, particularly where you have you have a, a series of uh, increasingly hazardous group actions two of which are sort of preparations uh, which might be like i don't know uh, you know capturing and, and milking poisonous toads or something like that uh, and then one ceremony which uh, which might be in that instance like surviving the mass hallucination that the players experience once that toad venom is ingested but like one one playtest ended up with uh, the group creating a spiral staircase out of puke <laughs> which is just immensely pleasing to me and I, I don't really recall how it helped them, <laughs> but um, I think I think maybe they got like a height advantage because uh, they had they were they realized that the giant vegetable monster that they were confronting uh, was vulnerable in some way from above, um, and this flashback ritual allowed them to get that get that height. But just the fact that other people were coming up with this stuff uh, unbidden. Well, sort of somewhat bidden by our, our partially structure bidden, around it. Yes. Partially bidden, yes. Uh, is is very gratifying. Because that's exactly what we wanted them to be doing. And they are without our direct prompting. Um, that's good. Uh, yes. <clears throat> Should I talk about monsters? Yes, monsters. Bit? Yes. So, um, slaying monsters is obviously the crux of teeth. Uh, and we have... 33, I think, monsters described in some detail, uh, each of which have their own sort of telltale signs and giveaway signs that the players can investigate, although there's intentionally actually some overlap between these creatures, uh, their evidence for them, so that seasoned monster hunters still need to dig a little deeper to actually kind of pick apart the, the, uh, the truth and correctly identify the creatures and then exploit their individual weaknesses. However, one of those 33 monsters... Uh, is in fact um, a table from which you can derive 160,000 different monsters. <laughs> uh, so um, I feel like 
there's probably enough monsters in there. The you can create uh, any kind of corrupted creature or or human you like, um, uh, and using this table you can piece together different uh, forms, unsettling countenances, and whatever you know, deviances of the mind and unnatural essences and appalling mutations, combining. Uh, to create a unique creature of your own devising. Um, and the point of this is that each monster has its own weaknesses that the players are encouraged to exploit, and they come up with this short plan of action that is then quickly put into motion via another dice pool roll, uh, number of dice, depending on how successful they were in identifying the creature in the previous phase. But also they have... Um, they have the opportunity to flash back to a ritual if they fully identify the creature, uh, which allows them to to do the the, the spiral staircase puking, um, as previously mentioned. How do you feel about our monsters, Jim? Uh, well, they're they're absolutely horrible. Wow, I was I was surprised by how appalled by some of them <laughs> I ended up being. Um, but what I think what was the in, the most interesting thing about the the, the creatures for me was how like a monster is almost like a problem or like a, a puzzle or um you know a situation or a kind of situation um and they there were just certain notes that we wanted to hit like obviously there's a great hound because you know been watching hound of the baskervilles over and over across across many months but there's also things like um jack of rags which is a character that i introduced in other games um which has a kind of enigmatic, you know, one of those kind of um, green knight type entities that that is is mysterious and playful. Um, And then others that are just sort of leftovers of things seen in like Cramley's worm. Where did that come from? That was one of yours, I think, in origin. I think it it definitely was. Yeah. I think it maybe comes from... um, uh, the Lampton worm type kind of stories, you know, the kind mm. of stories of great kind of horrible eel like creatures. Um, uh, and then, then other things like um, the shape in the lake, which are more tied into um, the plight of individuals in the, in the world. Um, so we created a character, um, Lord Mulhall, who's worried about what's in the lake. So, of course, we've created the thing that he's worried about, even though other people don't necessarily believe it's there and and so on. Um, and and uh, I've got a great deal out of that, I think. And, and, and I'm hoping that other people will pick up those, and I'm sure they will use them in, in very different ways to the ways we use them in, in playtesting. Um, the Stranger too, of course, the sort of... Uh, devil-like figure, although is he kind of? Um, I like the um, the ambiguity there as well. Well, there's there's ways in which that ties back to our one shots as well, and I uh, there's quite a lot of um, for people who've played the one shots, they'll they'll find quite a lot of references back to things in the one shots, characters who appeared in the one shots, uh, who have uh, met their fate in various different ways. Um, and may still be an evidence somewhere in the veil, and their stories continue in ways which um, I think will be quite amusing to, to people who've, who've played our previous games. Um, yes, uh, the the monsters were particularly satisfying to write, especially I mean, those from a mechanical perspective. It was enjoyable coming up with 
um, things that were unique in the way that you they they are a threat to you in the actual kind of uh, the the mechanisms by which they will seek a battle or can be can be battled, and the vulnerabilities and strategies that that, that are at the the player's disposal to to. Um, counter them again they are just designed as prompts in fact they may not even be true it could be just rumored that you're immune to a particular kind of creatures poisoned by you know having a live eel in your trousers or something like that the gm can propose that as knowledge that is available in the world but whether it's reliable or not is another (laughs) it's another thing i don't i don't think i mentioned this actually but i've 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 loved the what your depiction of fairies in, in in the book um Again, just absolutely hideous. Well, I had to sort of. Um, I, the fairies are also absolutely horrendous in Simba Room, right? There are fairies are. Oh no, that's that's the um, that's that's elves actually. Oh no, in, no, in, but in fairies Simba. are a kind of elf in Simba Room, right? The oh, fairies right. are like oh, the like the uh, the because the elves appear in like several different stages of life, mm-hmm. um, and only one of those stages of life is identifiable in any way as elves, as they might be depicted in other forms of fiction. But uh, one of the kind of the sort of um, the juvenile forms of elves are as these little nibbling creatures, uh, fairies. Um, and mm. I felt like uh, uh, I felt like I needed to do something similarly horrible with the the fairies in this, where they're sort of uh, puckish little demi humans, uh, of somewhat like gangly toddlers, uh, but whose uh, faces are subdivided into four petals, each of which has its own eye, um, and this uh, sort of like little puckered mouth from which they can uh, issue chirrups and uh, occasionally a sharp barbed proboscis um but i like the fact that they aren't necessarily evil either they're just another uh set of creatures that are in the world and they have their own society and, the, and they're not monolithic there may be groups of fairies who uh, oppose the things you're doing and there may be groups of fairies who are indifferent to them and some may serve other masters yeah, I mean, I think I'm I'm super pleased with just the sheer diversity of, of of what we've done with the monsters. From some of them being folklorish things, you know, names we picked up from from lists of creatures, um, to stuff that is like the dog makers, um, just genuinely being quite eccentric, and 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 also provided some. Stop, you know, just fantastic um, role playing opportunities. Uh, um, I was I was going to recount the Ollie Ollie and the Dog Makers, but I almost feel like that's such a great setup um, that other people may do, may do the same. So I don't want to I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to spoil it. Fair enough. Um, what else is there to discuss about the game? There's magic. Yeah, I mean, we sort of touched on magic. We're talking about rituals and stuff. I mean, mm. it, it, this isn't a this isn't a game of although you know we've mentioned wizards and, and so on in this. This isn't a fantasy game of magic, is it? It's very much a. Um, um, I mean, I suppose we had a, a more specific narrative intent in mind. I think, which was the scenes in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where the team in the library are researching something and performing a ritual to weaken the creature for then Buffy to kill in the graveyard. And we wanted to handle that via flashback, uh, which is another mechanic that's obviously come to us through the um, Forged in the Dark rule set. Um, 
in case people listening aren't familiar with that specific mechanic, it is super interesting in that it's um, it allows you at the cost of stress, which is the sort of narrative currency for the game, to say, all right, hold this for a moment. Earlier, we did X. So there's a guard at the door. That's going to flash back to the to us buying him drinks and bribing him the night before. But we want to take that slightly further with the way we did rituals in that you could have um, a flashback to what you did to weaken the creature um, magically. Um, and I think the the yeah the influence for that were the, the, those kind of scenes in I say Buffy because it's the probably the best known, but I'm sure there's there's plenty of examples of of the way of that being how did they beat this creature that was impossible um, in in this kind of uh, storytelling, and then it cutting back to the the ritual or the um, the, the magical process being uh, or just just straight up research um, being conducted. Um, before the event and i i really like the fact that we then ended up basing at least some of the way that we interpret magic um on that conceit yeah i think the the way that um magical actions can be conducted in teeth is uh a, a bit different from both D and uh and blades in the dark in blades in the dark it's very Freeform in D and D, as you say, you have specific spells. But in in Blades in the Dark, you can you, you, you know your your magical powers are only curtailed by the level of effect, really, that the GM decides your intention will have. Um, but I always feel like that is uh, that sort of to, sort of to say no to the player a little bit. Like um, the player wants to do this, and the GM will just say. Sure, go ahead. It won't be effective, <laughs> uh, and and that that although it is very it's very open, like you can you can do a lot of things. There is no curtailment on the kinds of things you can think of to do. Um, limiting the effect always feels a bit like a, a bit of a letdown in a way. So I th- the system that we've gone for here is is to sort of subdivide magic that's available to players into a number of different disciplines and uh and methods so the different disciplines of which the players will only know a limited few and then can learn some later will be things like elementalism or, or transmogrification magic which have their own kind of implied um applications like elementalism will be you know controlling uh, the the natural elements you know will be animating the earth or heating air and so forth whereas transmogrification will be um you know the ability to reshape things, like even animate things, like uh, temporarily mutating, for example. Um, and then separately from that, the players also learn these magic methods, the, the the means by which those things are applied. So, like that might be directly touching something, or it might be by concocting potions. And the idea is that it sort of retains the same sort of the the power of 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 magic but also by those limits forces players to think more carefully about how and where and even if they can apply that um so instead of you know uh just you know uh, attempting to to detonate a bishop's head uh with the power of their mind the gm can just uh you know the 
there'll be there'll be some process before that 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 needs to be prepared which will affect the effectiveness of it and so that might be like they they have to flash back to to stealing the the bishop's wig um and maybe there's you know or, or maybe they have to lure the bishop into a, a circle of salt or something like that so that that specific method can be applied to them um and i I feel like that's much more. It's 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 definitely more guided in a way, but it also means that there is more. Um, there's more specific specificity to it in a, in a way which I think is actually invites players to come up with more inventive solutions than just I'm going to blast that fucker with magic, bam, and that's it. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely it's it, it's narratively driven magic. It does require a little bit more. Um, than looking up your skill in the skill book and then interpreting it and finding a way to use it. It is definitely uh, it's a little storytelling challenge uh, for the players. And I don't, I, our players didn't use magic a whole lot, um, but that also felt like it was coherent to the setting. Um, like it doesn't feel like that's a thing that gets de- deployed regularly. I think it's a thing that gets deployed in a desperate situation or. Hmm. Well, it's quite hazardous um, mm. generally. There's a, there's a lot of threat of corruption, and if you we we track corruption as a stre- separate stack uh, stat, and uh, the more corruption get the uh, the potential there is for you to uh, receive a large variety uh, of hideous and often not very useful uh, but frequently amusing uh, mutations, um, which will be a problem both in social encounters and also because you have an objective which means you need to escape the veil at the end of the game um and you will not be allowed to do that by the guards at the cordon if you uh have like f- five hands uh they will they will say you're too tainted and you must remain here or simply try to exterminate you so there is there is there is a, a persistent hazard in in using magic because there there is always the, that threat of corruption oh i mean uh, just what you touched on there um i think is 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 interesting in, in terms of explaining the way this game works in that there is actually a win state because it's set against the timer because there is um you know, you, you want to complete your agenda track and get out. Um, uh, although this is a campaign-length book um, built to sustain a you know len- lengthy chunk of play, um, it has a kind of you know single season uh, length to it with a sort of nat- natural ending um, and the ability to to not make it and to. To, to 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 lose and to to not make it out of the veil, which I really like, um, mm. because I, I'm, you know, although you know, it's 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 um, a given that GMs are going to try and create an arc for their for their stories and try and or are going to run modules that will have a natural end uh, and so on. I quite like a campaign setting that that that, that does that. You know, builds in a regular mm. rhythm to it, um, which hopefully the sort of seasons and the agenda track does with this. Um, there's many kind of gradations of failure as well. I mean, you can mm. fail your uh, secret agenda and still escape the veil, uh, but there are criteria which will determine how much of a nice life and how long it is <laughs> uh, after after the conclusion of the game. So there's a there's always an epilogue uh, which may be affected by your level of success at your secret agenda. 
And mm. I, I think the, the secret agendas are also the, part of the, the key to the game, not just because they, they shape uh, different players, um, different groups' journey through the material we provided, um, but, but I think it also projects a sort of a, a possibility for um, some degree of political engagement with uh, the time and uh, a reflection on, on how we view it now, which is to say that um, it's not just an inert backdrop with some wigs and stockings thrown in like the i feel i feel like the past few years has seen uh something of a reckoning with the britain's history as a a, a colonial power <clears throat> well <clears throat> i say reckoning for for some people it's been a reckoning uh, it's definitely <laughs> become controversial whether or not uh you know members of the spectator are able to actually face the the facts of it um or whether they're still like shrouded in the comfort blanket of national exceptionalism and nostalgic jingoism uh, <laughs> or denial. Um, but, uh, but in any case, it feels like it would have been uh, like a missed opportunity as much as anything else for us not to give players an opportunity to engage with the ideas of empire and justice that were big thorny issues at the time and have only sort of since been elided and shuffled out of view. Um, in fact, I, I think whilst I was... I, whilst, yeah, definitely whilst I was writing this game, I ended up reading um, Satnam Sangera's Empire Land. And like, I, I feel like I'm, I had a fairly jaundiced view <laughs> of the British Empire already. And I feel like I was, I'm fairly historically literate about that, that time period. And I knew a lot of the stuff that happened. But man, that book, like, every page is just another draw dropping. Uh, terrible thing <laughs> that the British does uh, at that time or across the, the centuries around that time. Uh, and it left me so angry, Jim. Not not just angry at uh, Britain, uh, which is a past Britain and the people involved are dead, so there's limited function for that anger, but angry at my education, which did not include any of this stuff, generally mm. speaking. Mm. Um, anyway... The point is that we want players to work against the British Empire if they choose. We're not making this game for uh, British people exclusively. Uh, um, Americans will feel very differently about uh, uh, the role of King George III and Britain at that time because um, they were fucking fighting them. Um, and they have the choice to oppose British injustices you know, at home and abroad. They have the chance to right social wrongs if they like or if they can. They don't need to play, do that. They don't need to be good people. In fact, they're probably not very good people. Um, but we, we want that space to be available for like a sort of pop cultural revenge against <laughs> the British Empire. But it's a thin line to tread because we also don't want the game to be a traumatizing experience that forces these uncomfortable issues onto players without their full consent. But there are kind of threads of radicalism there um which aren't historically uh, inaccurate um but they're there if the players want to pull them and uh unravel things it's been a real pleasure engaging with the, with, the, with the material on that basis that it is it has a lightness of touch to it and it is silly but that doesn't mean we haven't taken it seriously it, you know someone who is very familiar with that period and has read uh, uh, as as you have i feel we'll get something out of it uh, as much as someone who 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 who's, who for whom 
this is largely flavour and, and and backdrop. And you know, and it's there to engage with or not, depending on on, on how you you know how you want to use it. Um, and you did write an excellent little breakdown of what life was like in, in that particular period in time. I hope it's accurate. Um, <laughs> I, I who cares? The whole mom. book's fiction. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> well, that's that's the get out, isn't it? I, th- I think you know there's um, there is some value in in placing things uh, more specifically in a particular time period. I think fiction gets richer for it, but at the same time, I don't want players to come to this and think, "Oh God, am I being anachronistic by saying they could have access to this and then having to Google Wikipedia?" Um, that's not the experience we want. So there is obviously flexibility. It is a different fiction. It's not reality. There is magic. There has been an alchemical catastrophe in uh, a part of England, which is actually too big to fit in the part of England that we say it's in. Uh, so it's not it's not our our reality exactly. So if if you discover a need for an invention that was made, you know, twenty years later, uh, you know, don't sweat it. Put it in there. Um, and it, it, equally, if you know, uh, players might not want to engage with some of the the horrific bigotries that were around at the time or the you know the the restricted roles the women played in society obviously we want um people to play this game whoever they are and uh feel comfortable doing so mm. and so uh, some uh degree of license with history is absolutely essential anyway even though i i did play with the idea of um very pedantically modeling the uh, effectiveness and efficiency of of guns for a while we realized that was probably really stupid because it takes over 15 seconds to fire one um indeed as you well know from your career in musketry <laughs> marsh it's been a pleasure we should probably wrap up our heinous and blatant self-promotion very well in that case it was it was egregious. I'm sorry to everybody uh, for that, um, but please buy <laughs> the thing. Uh, we spent too long doing it, and uh, it was uh, very economically inadvisable. Um, you can do that. You can lessen our economic strife by uh, going to a URL which we will put in the show notes, which links to the Kickstarter campaign. If you if you do, are minded uh, to back us at all. Uh, and you listen to this on the day at which this book is being launched, it would help us immensely if you backed us within the first 24 hours as that's what the algorithm likes. And God, we love to serve the algorithm. Uh, So yes, please back us. Thank you for your time. And we will restore normal podding to some degree of frequency sometime soon. (laughs) Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Marsh. Farewell, everybody.